Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the 119th Psalm, Psalm 119. This morning we'll be looking at verses 121 through 128. We've been working our way through the single longest chapter in the Bible now for most of the year, alternating between a stanza or two of this and then the next paragraph of the book of James. And by my Reckoning, we should finish both projects, James and Psalm 119, somewhere in January, God willing. Uh, As you turn there, I'll remind you that Psalm 119 is an extended acrostic in the Hebrew. Um, Other Psalms follow acrostic patterns, but this one trumps them all. Eight verses of each subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's serves a number of purposes. One, to to give us some scope of the magisterial um, weight and placement of this psalm. A psalm singularly focused on the God of the Word and the Word of God. Uh, A long, uninterrupted prayer between the psalmist, the servant of the Lord, and his God about his Word. We've seen it focus on the highs, the lows, the joys, the sorrows, the anguish in the life of the believer. One of the things I take great comfort from in the Psalms is how real they are. You can sometimes get the impression that um, people think Christianity is about having a nice, easy, simple life with nice, easy, simple problems, with nice, easy, simple solutions. And you read the Psalms and you see the anguish, the heartbreak, the pain. There's some of that here. More recently in Psalm 119, we're coming out of an of a emphasis on commitment to the Lord. Um, if you look back two stanzas, um, you will see this in verse 105 and 106. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And his response to that guidance that we considered was both um, immediate and holistic. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Then last week, we considered some of the steps it took required to keep that oath. A a focused, loyal love of God and equally appropriate um, hatred is the language here of verse 113 of those on the other team, as it were. This morning, we're going to consider some of the benefits. Um, The overriding word or theme of this segment is the two words, your servant, seen in verses 122 and 124 and 125. Three times, the psalmist refers to himself as your servant. After committing himself to God's word, after taking measures to, to rededicate himself, as it were, focused in serving and obeying God, this morning he identifies himself as the Lord's servant, and we're going to see There are some great benefits of being the Lord's servant. Um, Being a servant may not be something many of us aspire to, especially when you understand the word here could also be translated slave. The Apostle Paul, it was his favorite self-designation. Paul, slave of Christ. And I think we'll see this morning that the Lord performs mighty deeds and acts powerfully on behalf of his servants. You would do well to be a servant of the Lord. Let's read our text, have a word of prayer, and we'll begin our study. Psalm 119, 121 to 128. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. 
Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Lord God, I ask that you would help us to see in this text the the value, the, the good position of being your servant, of having you as a master. We might believe you are a faithful and good master, that you come to our aid, that you defend our cause, that you give us grace and help. Lord, I pray that you would um, give us the grace, the determination, the conviction, and the energy to, to be able to make the claim of our first verse that we might conduct ourselves in a way that is good and right. Lord God, give the grace this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I suggest that we can consider these eight verses in three segments. The first verse is 121 to 122. They're blank here. The fundamental prayer request, deliver me. Deliver me. The petition gets made twice in here. I've done what's right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge for good and do not let the insolent oppress me. Deliver me. But how he makes this plea and how he reasons with the Lord, I think, is very very instructive. We've seen throughout the psalm he has enemies. He has people gunning for him, people slandering him, people out to threaten his life. We've suggested that the, the, the halo data here suggests a, a composition likely made outside of the land of Israel, uh, the, the existence of foreign princes, uh, virtually no mention of temple worship, it fits well with the exile. It fits well with some other occasions. Someone like Daniel fits really well in the context. Not that we know who wrote this, but it suggests that type of, of location, living in exile, being in a strange place, having many enemies around us. Part of the reason why I think it's, it, it's a helpful psalm for us today. And this morning, his first cries for deliverance, we see. Deliver me. Do not leave me to my oppressors. But first, point A here, he gives a ground, a reason, a basis for this. I have done what is just and right. The ground. I have done what is just and right. Oh, I just got loud or something. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. There we go. Thank you. Um, Technical difficulties. Um, He gives a ground, a a basis. And we can stumble over this. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading through the Psalms, I will really have a hard time with some of David's or the other psalmist declarations. I have been righteous. Or here, I have done what is just and right. It can almost seem like braggadocia. Are you trying to impress the Lord? So as we consider what he's saying here, let's first rule out what he's not saying. He is not claiming any sort of sinless perfection. If you want to see that plainly, just go to the last verse of this psalm. 
Psalm 119, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So whatever this means, it's within a context of a, a faulty, frail, weak, straying man. He talks about how before he was disciplined, he went astray, but now he keeps your word. So whatever this claim to justice and right action is doing, it's clearly bounded within the, the, the normal ups and downs of life. He's not making a claim to sinlessness. That's not what's going on. I think he's, he's doing two things with this claim. First is a contrast between him and his oppressors. I have done what is just and right. In contrast, do not leave me to my oppressors. I think he's saying... The oppression that his oppressors are seeking to impose on him is unjust, unfounded. His oppressors are acting unjustly. It might be the case that you or I do something that deserves someone to be against us. Peter speaks of that in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, for what credit is it if you do wrong and are beaten for it you endure? It's entirely possible that people are opposed to us and we deserve it. We've been ungodly. We've been jerks. So I think the first point he's making is in relationship to his oppressors, he is innocent. He has not wronged them. He has not done anything to invoke or bring about their oppression. I think that's the first statement. So I've done what's just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. But the second, I got loud again here. Okay. The second is even more tricky on our part. Because what it seems to be saying, and I think there is something to this, is this notion of, because of what I've done, you do. We've got to be really careful of that. We've got to be really careful of that. But I think clearly that's part of the logic at work here. I've done something, so don't you do something. Don't leave me, speaking in the negative. Because of what I've done, don't you do this. I mean, we've got to be careful exactly what's going on here. I think the blank here is he expects God to act faithfully as well. That's, that's the logic. I've been faithful. I've done what's right and just. Therefore, you don't do this. So how, how do we make of this? The danger, I think, or the wrong way would be to approach this as sort of an mercenary endeavor. As if somehow if you just do enough good deeds and you add them up enough, you can cash those in like store credit for answered prayer. So just three more people that you can share the gospel with, and then the Lord will give you that new job. That's, that's not what's going on. And I, and I think we rightly can resist that. We, we don't ever, you and I never do anything that puts the Lord in our debt. You and I never do anything that obligates him to repay us as if we're his benefactor. You must never think of your relationship with the Lord that way. In fact, this Strophe, this stanza, is entirely framed by the psalmist's identity as God's servant. A servant speaking to a master, not someone who is beholding to him. So that's, that's not going on. This is not, repay me. I've, I've, I've done some work for you now, give me my pay. That's not what's going on. I think a couple things are going on, but first I want to read a couple texts, um, especially from the New Testament. H- how ought we, this is a question to consider, how ought we to think about our prayers and our prayer life in relationship to our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Or another way to put it, if you or I have been faithful in a relative sense as, as, as God's children, ought we to think that faithfulness increases, decreases, or does nothing to the efficacy of our prayer? 
Well, let me put it as simply as I can. If you're obedient, if you're being faithful, should you expect the Lord to answer your prayers more than if you weren't? I think, I think the answer is yes, and we've got to be careful how we say that. We've got to be careful what we mean by that. Because we don't ever want to presume to think we're making the Lord do something, we're twisting his arm, or we're buying something. But the New Testament makes some stunning claims. Let me read to you John 14, 13 to 15. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Matthew 7, 9. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So let me, let me set a, f- a framework here. Our fathers, assuming you're in Christ, assuming you're a believer, you're, you're joined to the Lord through faith, assuming you're the Lord's servant, his slave, our father, our master, is by default predisposed to give us what we ask for. That's, that's the logic of Jesus. When he says, which of you having a son asking him for a fish gives him a stone? Jesus says in Luke twelve thirty two, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, we also know from passages like um, Psalm 37, 4, sin in our life can inhibit our prayer life. Um, Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened First Peter, again, telling us, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers be not hindered. So certainly sin and unfaithfulness in our life can hinder our prayer life. Um, you can invite God's discipline and chastening. And God's default position is he delights to give his sons and daughters the things they ask for. Now, that doesn't mean each and every time we ask for something, we're to get it, because God also knows what we need. And so Paul can say, Lord, take this thorn out of my flesh three times in tears. And God knows Paul needs this protection from becoming proud and arrogant because God only gives good gifts. It's not a guarantee that each and everything you ask for will always be given. But I do think if we're being faithful, if we're not inviting his discipline, the usual course of things is God answers our prayers. Also, and I think here's another aspect I was talking to Pastor Daniel about this week. The more you and I are walking in the light, the more you and I are, are being faithful, and we're only going to be faithful to the Lord as we're walking in the light, as we're reading his word, as we're communing in prayer, I would expect my heart and its desires to more and more fall in line with the Lord's heart and his desires. Um, that, that verse in John 14 that sounded so lavish, anything you ask, get that phrase though, in my name, according to my person and my will. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I think the, the argument something like, I have been faithful. I have not been inviting your discipline. And consequently, because I've been faithful, I, I think my heart, my affections, my will are in line with yours. So therefore, Lord, will you answer my prayer? But I do think we should view it as, Likely, we should be hopeful. We should be believing and trusting that God generally likes to give his children, delights in giving his children the things they ask for according to his will. Yes, he knows best. Yes, 
He knows when we may need something else, and he gives us something better, even though initially it may look hard. He's, he's, he's going to give us freely all things. And so we can reason that way with God. The psalmist says, Lord, I've done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressor. So that's his ground of his prayer. His own personal justice in relationship to them, his innocence in relationship to them, and his faithfulness to the Lord. And he's calling on the Lord to be faithful in response. Then we get to the content of his prayer. Do not leave me to my oppressors. He doesn't want to be oppressed. And that's, that's, that's a good desire. Even as we need to be willing to suffer. Man, I, I don't know about you, but I was ministered to by the special music this morning. Life may well have challenging things in it. The Lord doesn't expect us to be masochists looking for pain and suffering. And so we can cry out, oh Lord, do not leave me to my oppressors. That's, that's a fine prayer to pray as the Lord's servant. And then we get to means. And this is where it gets even more bold and remarkable. And I'm going to take issue here with the translation the ESV provides. I think the NASB nails it. The, the Hebrew, I was talking to Pastor Daniel. Pastor Daniel's Hebrew is way better than mine. So when I get Hebrew questions, I'll go in and bug him. And... Uh, the Hebrew could be translated the way the ESV has it. The ESV's translation is legitimate, but I think far better is the NASB's. The means here is give your servant a pledge for good. I want to suggest to you that the, the New American Standards rendering is superior. Be surety for thy servant. The distinction is give me an assurance or give me surety or be to me surety. And I, and I think it's, he's asking the Lord himself to be the surety, not to give the assurance. Which then first raises the question, what does that mean? Well, surety, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, 5th edition, is this. One who has contracted to be responsible for another, especially one who assumes the responsibilities or debts in the event of another party's default. It's like someone who co-signs your loan in some respect. So what the psalmist not only is asking is that he would not be left to his oppressors, but he, he's got a particular way he wants to be delivered from his oppressors, and it is bold. And again, we may not like the idea of being a servant, but servants of this master have blessings and privileges that are astounding. Here, let me read to you what uh, Brian Borgman writes of what he thinks the psalmist is praying here in verse 22. Be surety. He says this, the servant is asking God to be his surety. If it were not for the mercy of the master, this would be audacious. Charles Spurgeon um, explains it this way. Here's his paraphrase of what is being asked. That the Lord would take up my interests, weave them into his own, and stand for me. And as my master, to undertake thy servant's cause... Represent me before the faces of haughty people until they see what an august Lord I have. What he's saying, I believe, but really simple. Lord, could you stand in my stead and deal with them? Could you be my surety and my security? Could you deal with them? It's bold. And it's on the basis of being a servant. Give your servant. It's a servant appealing to a master. Will you deal with this? Will you stand in my stead? Well, that's setting up a whole biblical theme that we see most clearly fulfilled in the cross. Let me, let me read to you 
This notion of God standing in our place, God being our payment, our security, God paying our debts. Hebrews 9, 14 to 15. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And Christ has stood in our stead on the cross, and he will come and stand in our stead at the end of days. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We have a Lord, if you will be his servant. We have a Lord who has once already stood in our stead. He took our sins on the cross. He took the punishment for our sin that we could not bear. Gave us his righteousness. He has already stood in our stead. And the book of Revelation and other passages he makes clear. He comes back and he defends his people. And so this psalmist has understood some of this, and he's calling on the Lord, will you be my surety? Will you stand in my stead against my enemies? And that's the very nature and character of our God. In redemption, he stands in our stead on the cross, and he will defend us. If you have opposition and opponents, you want the Lord to represent you. Don't represent yourself. Call on God to take up your cause. He is a faithful defender and a mighty fortress. So that's the means. That's what he wants particularly. So he's got his request. Don't leave me to my oppressors. How? By standing in my stead, by representing me to them, by being my surety against them. The second blank here. So he asks the Lord to be a surety. The servant asks his master to stand for him. That's the idea. Um, This is the same notion first seen in Genesis 43. You remember when... Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph. He hides his cup of divination in the sack. And he wants to see Benjamin. Judah goes back up and he says to Jacob, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that he may live and not die. Both he, you and your little ones. And then he says to Jacob, I will be surety. I will guarantee him. Job 17.3, using a similar uh, figure of speech, lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Or possibly an antecedent to this prayer here, same, same Hebrew language, is the prayer of, of Hezekiah in Isaiah 38.14. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. So this is a, a theme in the Scripture calling on God to represent, to stand in our stead. And and, and this psalm indicates to us that servants of the Lord, those who call him master, can call on their master to do this. We have a master who represents and stands for his people. It's good to be a servant of the Lord. Guarantee your servant's well-being. So that's that's the, the means. Now let's get to the result. Similar to what he said before, do not let not the insolent oppress me. These arrogant people um, are oppressing him. And, and the text leaves the form of oppression open. 
Um, they, they mean evil against him. They're trying to harm him. They're trying to put pressure on him. And he doesn't want to be left to them. He doesn't want it to succeed. That, that's fine. You and I may face enemies and enmity and struggle and travail in this life. And you can call on God to represent your cause, to take it upon himself, to represent your interest, to be your surety. This is the right and privilege of servants of God. Second point we move to. Teach me. Teach me. Verses 123 to 125. My eyes long for your salvation and the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And it begins with the confession of his weariness. My eyes long for your salvation and for your fulfillment of your righteous promise. He, he's, throughout this psalm, we've seen this, he's been calling on the Lord to answer him. And in part, the Lord does, but he still has more he wants from the Lord. But I want to point out his focused hope. The, the picture of eyes longing as you have them set, whether it be on the horizon waiting for the dawn to come, whether it be a door you're hoping someone's going to walk through and you're focused and your eyes are waiting and you're looking and you're looking. What are you not doing? You're not looking around. You're not getting distracted. This is a picture of focused, singular hope. The weariness comes because I've been doing nothing else, which means he set his hope on the Lord's deliverance and nothing but the Lord's deliverance. This is close to the, the same picture the figure of speech of Psalm 123, verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master. That's a good fit right there. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. He's an expectant servant looking for God's deliverance. He's looking to his master for his help. Because again, these are the privileges of being a servant of the Lord. We have a master who saves and delivers and redeems and stands in our stead. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. So he confesses his weariness. But in his weariness, we see his singular focus, his loyalty, his single desire. We saw in the previous weeks his Others may be hedging their bets. He's, it's all or nothing. Either God shows up and delivers me or I fall flat. Next, verse 24, I put the word covenant. Covenant. This is covenantal language. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. That deal with your servant literally is do, act, do with or to your servant according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love me. Act according to your steadfast love. Um, uh, Zemeck writes this. The request for divine concern and care, in verse 124, resides in a covenantal context. Besides referring to himself again as your servant, this needy worshiper predicates his bold request upon the precedent of the Lord's loyal love. What the ESV translates as steadfast love is that Hebrew term we've seen before, chesed. 
It's, it's God's gospel love, his covenant love. It's always and only used of the Lord in reference to those to whom he's in a covenantal relationship. You could think of his gospel love. God loves the birds and the sparrows. He's never said to chesed them. His steadfast, loyal, gospel, covenant, saving love. Do, do to me according to that is his request. Because again, our, our, our Lord, our Father, our Master has made a covenant with his people. And in that covenant, he serves and blesses and acts with steadfast, loyal love. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. But these are prayers only servants of God can make. Be his servant. Decide, settle the matter, because he has steadfast love. The Bible speaks of God doing steadfast love in many places in uh, the Ten Commandments, where it says keeping steadfast love. It's doing steadfast. God does steadfast love. I, I like that picture. It's more active. Or Jeremiah. Um, where's the reference here? And I don't have it. So we'll just. Go. Oh, no, I have it right here. Oops. Okay. Jeremiah 9.24. Let him who boasts, this is the passage, don't boast in what you can do and what you know. Let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, or who does steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth, from these things I delight. Our God, our Lord, our Father, our Master, does steadfast love. He does covenant loyal love to his people of covenant. And so this servant boldly is calling out, okay, do that. You've made promises. We can go from one end of scripture to the other. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do that to me. I will give you grace. You will not be tempted beyond what you're able. Do that to me. Those who call on me, I will uphold and give strength. Do that to me. According to all your promises, God, act to your servant in accordance with them. I mean, it's just a marvelous prayer. But again, it's, it's the prayer a servant of the living God can make to his God. It's the servant of a slave to a master, but a slave with tremendous privileges, tremendous privileges. It's a covenant here. And again, it's a singular hope. Either God's gospel promises will be kept or I'm lost. I have no other hope. My eyes are weary, waiting for your salvation. I'm calling on you to act towards me in accordance with your steadfast love, and teach me your statutes. Again, his, even as he has oppressors and people out to get him, he never loses his appetite for more of the word. It, it's a both and. Get me out of my trouble I'm in, and continue, continue to teach me. Teach your servant. And we in the new covenant, having the Holy Spirit indwelling us to teach us all things, we, we have such great privilege and blessings, and we see the boldness of this psalmist. The, whatever is going on in your life, whatever difficulties, whatever travail, do not lose your appetite to know God's word and your desire to know it better. Teach me your statutes. And finally, point C, instruction. Instruction. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And again, he's he's appealing to the relationship he has. And there's there's a number of biblical metaphors for that relationship. Father to child, 
That's a biblical metaphor. King to subject, that's a biblical metaphor. And master to slave or master to servant is an equally biblical metaphor. And the logic's clear. By identifying myself as the Lord's servant, I'm saying, tell me to do what you want. Give me whatever commands you want. But please also help me understand them so I can do them. Give me understanding so I can do the things. Now, what employer, what master, what parent, if, just take a parent. Imagine, by some stroke of grace, one of your children came to you and said, Father, I want to carry out your commands. I want to do that which you would have me do. Could you teach me and show me what it is you want me to do so that I could do it? What parent's going to say, get lost? It would delight me. I'd be delighted if my child made it clear. I need to know how to load the dishwasher, Father. Teach me. (laughs) Right? These are are requests I'm going to make time for. And that's the posture being struck here. I'm your servant. Give me understanding. It's not that I just want to know because I want to be able to win arguments. I want to know because I just like accruing knowledge. The, The clear implication is I want understanding so I can know your testimony so I can be your better servant. That's the logic. You come to God saying, I want to obey you. I want to be more faithful. Help me understand what your word says so that I know what it is you want me to do and how you want me to do it. These are prayers God answers. These are prayers God answers. Instruction. Okay. Final section, verses 126 to 128. Vindicate your name and your word. Vindicate your name and your word. There's an implied request here. We've seen the, the overt requests so far are for deliverance and for instruction. But verse 126 has an implied request. It's really exhorting the Lord to action. It's time for the Lord to act. For your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. So, vindicate your name and your word. Notice the focus is your law has been broken. So, first, his loyalty, the psalmist's loyalty. And notice how he reasons according to the Lord's priorities. According to the Lord's priorities. We we may expect him to say, Lord, they're harming me. And there are prayers that come out like that. Lord, I'm in peril. They're wronging me. But here, it's appealing to God's desire that his honor be upheld. Because we know from passages like Psalm 138, verse 2, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God has exalted his word. These people are trampling on it on the ground. And so the psalmist is assuming God's priorities. I know my master is passionate about his glory, about upholding his word. Surely he will rise to act when people trample it underfoot. Your word has been broken. Your law has been broken. It's time for the Lord to act. He's calling on God to to rise up, not on his behalf in the first instance, but on the Lord's own behalf. Second point here, a servant's zeal must be for his master's honor. So even as there's room, I don't, don't leave me to my oppressors. Don't, don't leave me in their hands. 
he also has a zeal for his master's reputation and glory, which is fitting for a servant. We know um, Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. And we know who quoted that many years later in the temple in Jerusalem. It was not the Lord Jesus' provocation of the dishonor he was receiving directly, but my father's house has been made into a place of robbers and thieves. And so the psalmist is calling on God to act in concert with his own deliverance. Also, they're breaking your law. They're trampling down your rules. It's time for the Lord to act. God's servants have his priorities, his values in mind, his honor first and foremost in their thinking. Which brings from his loyalty to his, his love, his love. You get these two therefore statements. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. When I first started looking at this, those therefores didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's time for the Lord to act. If your law has been broken, therefore, I love your commandments. Didn't make a ton of sense. But I I think I got a handle on this now. I think what he's doing is he's calling the Lord to rise up and to act, to judge by implication, to punish, to vindicate his name, his word, And that call to action, his own indignation at seeing others trampling God's word, rises up in response a loyal cleaving even more to God's word. Think of it if you see someone um, harming, rebuking, speaking harshly to someone you care for and love, you may come up alongside them even more and hold them more tightly. One of my children, you know, a dog almost bites them. I can hold them afterwards more. It reminded me of my love for them. My cherishing of them. Here, the trampling of God's word, the breaking of his law, the anticipation of God rising up to act causes in him an even greater love and response to God's word. This gets back to that picture of loyalty and whose team are you on? And and the psalmist here is on team the Lord and his word. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. He treasures God's word above all. Seeing God's word broken, seeing God's word set aside, ignored, disobeyed, only wells up within him greater love for and valuing for God's word. This is a bold declaration. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. It's a bold declaration. Um, Something we know we should say. But when you think of the amount of money we will spend to send our kids to school so they can make more money, they can be in a profession, they can learn, they can, or the amount of time an apprentice will spend in a trade, learning a trade to earn a living. You think of how much effort, energy, time, money, the years we put into preparing, earning a living. Not that any of that's wrong. That's fine. It's fitting, but we will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases, years of our lives so that we can get better jobs with better incomes. Well, if we treasured God's word above wealth, 
How much time would we put into studying that? That's the comparison that's convicting. We know what people will do when they care about things. We know the time people will spend preparing to be a doctor, preparing to be an architect, an engineer. You can't just waltz into those professions. you got to put years of study and preparation down. And I know it's not just to earn money. I'm not trying to say every, every doctor or architect is a mercenary. But that's part of the package, right? It's part of the package. And this psalmist, even as we, you and I might be tempted to say, I can't study God's word. I've got too many people oppressing me right now. I've got too many problems. Life's too hard. He is simultaneously concerned about that and teach me, teach me. And I value and I love your word. It's, it's a challenging and convicting statement because we know what we do and the priority we make and the time we find for things we value. We need to value God's word in a similar way. And it also not only leads to his treasuring God's word above all, but he trusts God's word above all. Again, when you see people around you disagreeing with mocking God's word, we may be tempted to doubt It's a lot easier to believe God's word when everyone says, yay, amen. So when God's word says something about human sexuality or marriage or gender or whatever, and then most of the culture says, no, we don't believe that, we can start to feel a little shaky and embarrassed, but not this psalmist. Look at the therefore again. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. His response to the insolent, Breaking God's law is an emboldened love and treasuring of God's word and an emboldened confidence in it. God's servants trust their master's words and commandments. And as they see him be faithful, to stand in their stead, to represent their interests, you can be confident that God's word is right. What it says is true. A little later in the psalm, one of my favorite verses, the sum of your word is true. Truth, verse 160. I like to think of like a math equation. And it's just you add up and then there's the line and then below the line is the sum and truth. The sum of God's word is truth. And this love and this trusting of God's word has a corollary emotion we've seen already. And it's loathing. Loving one thing creates hatred and loathing for its opposite And so again, you can't be neutral to evil if you love the Lord. Love of God and his word will produce a corresponding emotional response to those things opposed to it. I love your word. I hate every false way. Back in verse 113, I hate the double-minded. Back in 104, I hate every false way. Love for my wife creates in me opposition Rage at the one who would hurt her. Right? We get that. And so your love for God and his word, your loyalty to your master will also be seen in your opposition to that which would call you away. So let me, let me close up, summarize the thought of this. This stanza, the, the psalmist identifies himself three times as the Lord's servant. And even though we may think of a servant as having duties to perform, he's actually using his identity as a servant to call upon God to act for him. 
Because yes, make no mistake, as God's servants, we need to obey. We need to strive to be able to make the claim of verse 121. We need to strive to be faithful servants. And again, we, we, we may not relish the idea of being another servant, someone who can be told to come and go as someone else pleases. But this psalm and this strophe reminds us that the Lord's servants have privileges and prerogatives and blessings that no one else has. You have a God who has already stood in your stead on the cross. I mean, what, what greater proof do you need that you have a trustworthy master than that? While we were his enemies, before we became his children, before we became his servants, he purchased us. He paid the debt on the cross for our sin. And he he invites us to be in a reconciled relationship with him. But that relationship is is one he defines. Would you be his child, his son, his daughter? Would you be his servant? Would you be his citizen? All of which assumes a relationship, right? One's up, one's down. And we can be tempted to think, I don't, I don't want to be anyone's servant. You want to be the Lord's servant. You, you want to be able to call on God to be your surety. You want to be able to call on God to keep his promises to you, to instruct you, to vindicate his name. That's the best place to be. Our closing song this morning wonderfully puts this into words. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let me call the worship team forward. We'll prepare for our closing song.